Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, where oppression is on the menu. When George H.W. Bush took the podium in his acceptance speech for the Republican nomination way back in 1988, he was well behind in the polls. Just a few weeks earlier, then-Democratic Governor Michael Dukakis of Massachusetts had a 17-point lead over Bush. But I'll never forget when Bush stepped up there and made a speech that, and a promise that few of us will ever forget, at least those who lived during those times. You have to remember that Bush came out of the Reagan administration. The Reagan administration today is seen as one of the great presidencies uh, of the United States history, at least by conservatives. It wasn't perfect. There were a lot of challenges there with it, just like there are with anyone in any administration. But of course, Bush hadn't always been favorably inclined towards Reagan or his policies. He was famous for calling Reagan's economic plan voodoo economics in the campaign back in 1980 when Reagan beat him. But nonetheless, Reagan picked him and brought him on board, and Bush was a dutiful vice president. As he was running for the race, conservatives weren't quite sure what to do with him, and of course all the press that Michael Dukakis was getting, it turns out that the press's role today in promoting Democrats isn't a new thing. It's been going on for a long time. And so Bush was awash in criticism and doubt. And then he stood up and gave a speech. And as soon as he gave that speech, I knew that he was going to be elected president of the United States. It was, it was a great speech. It captured, I thought at the time, the essence of what Reagan was trying to do. And of course, everybody will remember his pledge that he took at that point in time. And let, let me read that to you. And I'm the one who will not raise taxes. My opponent now says he'll raise them as a last resort or a third resort. But when a politician talks like that, you know that's one resort he'll be checking into. My opponent won't rule out raising taxes, but I will. And the Congress will push me to raise taxes, and I'll say no. And they'll push, and I'll say no, and they'll push again. And I'll say to them, read my lips. No new taxes. Well, as I mentioned, I thought that perfectly captured the sentiment of the Reagan administration, and I was sure that it would vault him to victory. And sure enough, it did. But it wasn't too long before Bush got into office when things started looking a little shaky for him. And I don't recall at this distance what that might have looked like and exactly, but I do know in what order they all came in. But I do know, for instance, that He was responsible for signing a reauthorization of the Clean Air Act that had very many bad provisions in it. He signed the American for Disabilities Act, which still today has added billions and billions of dollars of cost to American lives, violated property rights, and caused pain for many people without really doing much at all for Americans with disability. But, of course, the the single thing that defined the Bush presidency and and what brought him 
down in the 1992 elections was his turning back on his promise not to raise new taxes. And it's, it's amazing to think about it in this perspective because he even foresaw, prophesied, if you will, about what would happen, what they would say to him. Congress, he says, will push and push to raise taxes, and I'll say no. And they'll push, and I'll say no. And they'll push again, and I'll say to them, read my lips, no new taxes. And he was right. They pushed, and they pushed, and they pushed, but eventually he blinked. It's very interesting. If you go back, it wasn't Republicans who were pushing him. Yes, there were Repub- the Republican leadership was all on board and pushing him, but the vote on the bill to raise taxes, majority of Republicans voted against that. It was the Democrats and the moderate, squishy, rhino Republicans that, that pushed it on him and to whom he caved to. And, of course, that was the end of his presidency for all intents and purposes. Uh, raising taxes came in the midst or right on at the beginning of what was a um, recession. And raising taxes, of course, harmed the economy during that. And it basically, if it wasn't the violation of the promise that sunk him, it was the cruddy economy that followed his raising taxes. So why do I bring all this up almost 30 years later? Well, because I want to put it in the context of friends and foes. Because a lot of us in the evangelical church today are seeing people who we consider friends, like many Republicans and even conservatives saw George H.W. Bush in the day, taking positions that are in opposition to our beliefs. And not just in opposition to what we believe, but harmful to what we believe. And of course, it's not just what we believe from our perspective, but it's what we see in the Bible that God has said. So for instance, in my walk in the Presbyterian Church of America, which is where I go to church, I see this slowly unfold. When I first joined the PCA back in 1998, I had no idea what Reformed theology was. But I quickly learned, and it didn't take me long before I was all in. And I thought I'd found a denomination. I could go throughout the country and travel and find a PCA church, and they would faithfully proclaim the gospel in all areas of life, not just Jesus' death on the cross, but what Jesus' death on the cross meant to more than just my personal salvation, but to the salvation of the world and the culture around us and the governments of the earth. And it's still a good denomination in, in many ways, but we've moved far away from where I thought we were. I lived for years in ignorant bliss, not really understanding the direction that the PCA was going. I think my first clue was when uh, the pastors in a local church, not my church, but in a local church, were telling their congregants that it was okay to vote for Obama for president of the United States in 2008. This is a man who supported abortion, was all in on abortion rights, was in favor of killing babies in their mother's womb. Yet, out of this misguided and wrongful sense uh, around racial reconciliation, they were telling their congregants that it was okay, even encouraging them to vote for 
Barack Obama as President of the United States. This is the same Barack Obama who at the time said he was opposed to same-sex marriage, but everybody knew it was a lie, as came to be seen later, yet PCA ministers were pushing this on their congregants. Later I learned about the, the seven days of creation. When I came in the PCA, I didn't believe in the literal seven days of creation, but it didn't take me long again to come to understand that that's what the Bible actually says. It's amazing when you look at the Bible how plain and clear it can be, even though we make a lot of attempts to make it otherwise, confused, so we can push our own agendas. But it's very clear. Yep, I found that many pastors, elders in the PCA don't follow the seven days of creation. They come up with a lot of other positions to justify an earth that is billions of years old, which fits perfectly into the scheme of unbelievers who need billions of years to let their Darwinian view of the world play out and come up with the world we have today. This beautifully defined, purposed creation out of nothing and chaos all through random chance. And then from there on it went into more into racial reconciliation, now into Black Lives Matter, uh, the role of women in the church, uh, abandoning that. Many in the PCA have even left the PCA and gone to denominations where women can be pastors. Eschatology, uh, not reading carefully through the book of Revelation and Matthew 24 and Second Peter and other places and and, and buying into this going to hell in a handbasket view and ignoring the fact that most of Revelation is about the coming of Christ in, Ju in judgment on Jerusalem. We also see this today in uh, social justice, acceptance of social justice principles, economics for big government, uh, the role of government, basically saying that the government gets to do almost whatever it wants to do, really ignoring Christ's current kingship over creation, embracing this, the homosexual message of gay Christian, and even public education, continuing to support public education system that is turning believing children into very confused children, and taking children who aren't believers but are at least brought up in the church and turning them away from any recognition of biblical perspective on the world. So that that's going on just in the PCA. It's also going on in the SBC, and, and those are the more conservative evangelical denominations in the United States today. Whatever evangelical means today, it's hard to know. I'd like to read a little bit from Doug Wilson. Very fond of what Doug Wilson writes, and he wrote this piece recently called Getting Evangelicals Saved. To this end, to, towards this conversation I'm talking about, I just want to read a portion of his recent post. Now, what are we to make of it when all the hot lava from the world of unregenerate hearts erupts into the sky and a number, number of evangelicals start admiring it or making excuses for it or compromising with it? Like answers to like. This is happening because a vast swath of the evangelical world is unregenerate also. 
The reason why evangelicals can look at race riots and defend them as expressing frustration over the root causes of poverty is because they need to be born again. The reason why countless sermons across the nation are starting to go woke is because the men preaching them are dead in their sins. The reason why the atmosphere of many churches has reached such intolerable levels of humidity is because the controls for the AC are located in the middle of the women's ministry. In short, the unbelieving world needs the gospel for obvious reasons. But the believing world also needs the gospel because the believing world is shot through with unbelief. And it seems to me the believers should not be unbelievers. Within the church, what do we see with regard to the first chapters of Genesis? Unbelief. Within the church, what do we see when it comes to the assigned role relationships between men and women? Unbelief. Within the church, what do we see when it comes to the authority of Christ in the public square? Unbelief. So what then is our problem? He quotes Hebrews 3.12. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Then back to Wilson. Gilbert Tennant once preached a famous sermon on the dangers of an unconverted ministry, a sermon he later regretted as too uncharitable. But in a time of great unfaithfulness and apostasy, as this generation most certainly is, perhaps the shoe might fit a bit better now. So the question is, what do believers, evangelicals, in, in the PCA, the SBC, or whatever denomination it might be out there that are holding faithfully to a robust biblical worldview and interpretation of what the Bible is telling us about things today. Well, one thing we can do is get mad, and there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. When we see anyone talking about the world or doing things in the world that are contrary to God's authoritative scripture, anger is an appropriate response. And I think that's particularly true when we see actions contrary and beliefs and speech and writing contrary to Scripture coming from our friends who are in the church with us. I've worked in politics for a long time, and I've always been able to look at the folks on the other side of the aisle, the, the liberals or the Democrats, and look at them with a, a measure of well, compassion, but also uncaring. I, I don't really care what they think in one sense, because I know that they don't have the right views in the first place. They never came to me and told me that they were my friends, they were on my side. They've always been on the other side. And so... It doesn't make me as mad when I see them doing what I believe to be wrong as when I see the people who are bent on my side and walking with me do things that I believe are wrong. Now let me just make it clear that I understand that I can be wrong too, but that doesn't change the perspective here. When I see what other people are doing and I believe that's wrong, and we're focusing particularly here on the world of politics and the world of 
theology, although this applies to personal relationships as well and, and personal actions outside of that. But when, when I see that, and I see it from people who are on my side, I tend to get really mad about that. I feel betrayed. And, and again, I think that's an, an appropriate feeling to have, an appropriate anger to have when people do something contrary to what God says. But there's a couple of caveats there we have to work with. One, it's really hard for us not to see things exactly straight. We could be wrong, and our madness, our anger, could be directed in the wrong direction. The other thing is, our anger might be directed in the correct direction. They, they might actually be wrong, but it's really easy for a believer to have his righteous anger turn into unrighteous anger and to have his righteous anger turn into bitterness. So short bits of anger, appropriate, but we need to work to turn back to God and ask him for peace and wisdom and how to deal with our friends. And I received that recently from a friend, good wisdom. In a discussion we were having, he pointed out that when we look at evangelicals on our side and we see in them wrong doctrine, we have to understand that that wrong doctrine comes out of a heart that's not in the right place when it comes to their relationship with God. It's not that they're not believers. They, they well could be. But still, their heart's not in the right place, and, and so they don't see clearly what is wrong. And that's, that's easy to see when it comes to unbelievers. Unbelievers have wrong doctrine everywhere because their heart is totally in the wrong place when it comes to their relationship with God. But this can also be true with believers, too. And it's going to be true with all believers, not just a few believers, but all believers. And so that, that really helped me open my eyes when I look around me and see statements from believers that exhibit unbelief. It could be that they are actually unbelievers, as Doug Wilson was talking about, but it could be that they are believers who are struggling with their unbelief and thus have wrong doctrine. And so that has really helped me just in the last, this all happened in the last week, and that has really helped me to see things more clearly when it comes to my friends who don't see things the way I think they ought to be seeing them when it comes to all these issues that we've been talking about and that we see in the world today with us. I think a perfect example of somebody who personifies this perspective for me is David French, very well-known columnist, National Review Online, goes to a PCA church in Tennessee, and he recently wrote a column, Coronavirus, Conspiracies, Theories, and the Ninth Commandment. And I, I won't go through the whole thing, but, but basically what he's talking about is we're seeing all these conspiracy theories out there, as he puts it, because the church hasn't developed a good enough theology of politics and government, and particularly haven't taught the church to bring their personal morality, don't lie, don't steal, don't covet, don't misrepresent the truth, all those kind of things, into our politics. Now, certainly, people need to get taught these things, and they need to apply them in all parts of their lives. But I think David French has this wrong. I think where the church is lacking is it's not that they're not teaching 
people to extend personal morality into the field of politics it says is that the most of the evangelical church has no clue what the bible tells it about the role of government and so basically they think that the government can do uh, just about anything a few limits here and there the evangelical church isn't paying attention to what the bible talks about race and culture and so I, i think French has got it wrong, and French is one guy who often gets me pretty fired up because he's supposedly on my side. I've never met the guy, but I'm working to love him. I'm working to love my neighbors who I go to church with, who I disagree with, and I think that's really important for all of us, but I think it's also important for us to develop this theology of the culture, not just politics, but the culture, the role of government, the role of we play in, in, in race, all these types of things, really dig into the Bible. And so that's the way I often work out my challenges with all this, is I get in and I write, and I blog, and I write articles. And I also like to pray. I don't pray nearly as much as I ought to, but, but these are the kinds of things that help me move forward in this. And, and I go through this pretty semi-personal story because I think... A lot of us are being beat up today in the evangelical church who believe we are holding fast to biblical truths, and we're getting beat up not just by the enemy, but by our friends. Friends in other churches and and friends even within our church. And so resisting this and being faithful in this requires a perseverance in repentance on our parts and in loving our neighbor while still standing up strongly for the truth, but being wise in how we go forward. Thank you very much for being with me today on the Liberty Cafe.